section number five and we're still on the topic of knowledge so section number five he says scholars that do not benefit from their knowledge scholars that do not benefit from their knowledge I'm going to try to move a little bit faster today because we have to finish in this lifetime, inshallah. And um, we also want to get to, we only have a couple of weeks before Ramadan. So if we don't move faster, we won't get to sections on fasting and stuff like that. No pun intended. <laughs> Let's uh, speed up a little bit. Zakat, we want to get to Zakat and fasting. Bismillah. Know that debating with the purpose of winning and boasting is the source of vile character. Akhlaq al akhlaq al madhmuma. A person who does this is not safe from arrogance, urjb as he belittles those with less knowledge and is amazed at himself for being above so many others in the same field. He is also not safe from ostentation, riyah, because what the debaters of today mostly aim at is making people know that they won the debate. Wow. They want to be covered in praise and thanks, so they spend their whole lives learning things like the art of oration and memorizing rare information, all of which makes them better debaters but are of no benefit in the afterlife. SubhanAllah, when you read these books, this topic always comes up. And, you know, it's a reminder that the books of the righteous people and the inherited knowledge of the Ummah are always relevant and beneficial and important. Because you might read it and, you know, I came across this probably for many years and didn't really think twice about it. Probably personally because I'm just not like the, really the debating type. I don't, I don't really like debates. I don't like argumentation. So when people are like, what about this? What about that? I'm like, listen, if you don't trust what I have to say, just go talk to somebody else. <laughs> like, I'm not, or it does, you can either do that or we can sit down and we can study. These are your two options, but I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. It's just not, uh, it's not going anywhere. And so I never really thought much about this, but subhanAllah, and, and truly, honestly, 
I don't mean anyone in particular when I say this, and I don't even know the the scene. Like I'm not following the scene, so to speak. But people, students keep asking me questions, and people keep sharing things with me online and stuff like that. And it seems like there's a big thing now around like debates, and like that's what people are known for online is you know they're like dawa debates, and everyone's debating all the time and arguing all the time. And, uh, the big thing that he's trying to mention here is that if a person goes down that route, it's very difficult for them to be safe from an ujb and riya. Ujb and riya. Ujb and riya are essential diseases of the heart. Ujb is to feel really content with oneself and to like really be, it's not really, it, it's like you have you know, like someone they're really impressed with themselves. Actually, that's how you would say it in English. So, so when someone's really impressed with themselves, you know, they're like, they're really, mashallah. So this is an issue. This is a big spiritual disease, actually, is to be really impressed with oneself. To be like, I'm so great, and I'm so this, and I'm so that, and so on and so forth. Huge spiritual problem. The other one is riyah. Riyah is to show off. So people start doing things then to show off. Both of these are major uh, problems. And they want to be covered in praise and they want to be thanked. So they spend their whole lives learning things like the art of oration and memorizing rare information. So they have all this abstract information, you know, random. It's almost like trivia. Actually, a lot of Muslim kids, I see them do this. They think it's knowledge. They have random information. Lots of trivia. Trivia is not knowledge. Trivia is information. Information is not knowledge. It's ma'luma. Uh, there's a big difference between ma'luma and ilm. Ma'luma is like a piece of information you have. It's great, you know, you got this piece of information. Fine. Second issue is, how do I build within myself a structure of knowledge? How do I learn how to think properly? How do I put things in their place? How do I understand things the way that they're supposed to be understood? And so on. And that's what knowledge is. Knowledge isn't knowing every single obscure detail. Knowledge is being able to put things in the right place and to think properly. Um, I, I think he needs some. alaikum. Okay. Okay. What is it? Many people throw in the bread and the food is the Oh, the bread. This is for the food. For the compost, like compost stuff? Like food, food. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. MashaAllah. Very nice. Uh, so this is not knowledge. Anyways, I said I was going to move faster. We've talked about this before. Um, the big issue here, subhanAllah, like I'm reading it and the image that comes to my mind is Shaykh Ahmed Taha Rayyan, rahimahullah ta'ala, nafa'allahum bi. Shaykh, uh, Shaykh Rayyan was Shaykh al-Malikiyah in, uh, in Azhar, in Egypt, basically in the world. We've talked about him before. But subhanAllah, he would come to his classes with consistency and very simple, you know. Someone shows up, alhamdulillah, no one shows up, alhamdulillah. 
like literally from the biggest scholars in the world, a lot of times, some of his classes, you have almost nobody in it, handful of people. But he's teaching the class because that's what he's supposed to teach, you know? It has been narrated that the Prophet ﷺ said, the people with the severest punishment on the day of resurrection are the scholars who did not benefit from their knowledge. Send them Section 6, the etiquettes of the teacher and the student and the adversity of knowledge and the scholars of evil and the scholars of the afterlife. This section in Imam Ghazali's Ihya uh, is really powerful. It's a very powerful section. Um, obviously here, like we said before, it's much shorter. I just remembered now actually that I taught that book before. Only the section, imagine this is the whole section in the abridged version. This is all of worship related matters, right? Starting with knowledge and then worship. Just the translation of the Book of Knowledge from Imam Ghazali's Ihya is probably like twice this size. And uh, it's one of the first things that I taught in the Majlis actually. Um, the recordings are there on SoundCloud if you want them. The student should purify his inner self, taharat al-nafs, from lowly characteristics, al-radha'ad al-akhlaq, and blameworthy traits, madhmum al-sifat, before anything else, because knowledge is the worship of the heart. Knowledge is the worship of the heart. So they have to be very serious about this. Because if the person is going to attain knowledge, what is the eventual outcome of that? They increase in knowledge, they increase in knowledge, they increase in knowledge, eventually people look at them as being someone of knowledge, so they go to them, they ask them questions, they look up to them, they seek guidance from them, all of these kind of things. So if the person doesn't have some level of spiritual rectification, it becomes very problematic. He should dissociate himself from all distractions, for when one's mind is focused on more than one thing, it falls short in grasping the realities of things. SubhanAllah, we were just talking about this. Instead, in circles of knowledge, they always say, ilmu la and knowledge won't give you a piece of itself unless you give it all of yourself. Knowledge won't give it, you know, obviously we're here in a kind of like adult education setting, right? So it's not the expectation. <laughs> expectation is not that everyone here is going to give knowledge, give themselves to knowledge entirely. But it is important to understand. Uh, as we said before, it is important to understand the ideals. Because if we don't, if, if we just change the ideals all the time, we end up with a distorted reality that's not sound. And now, is a phenomenon I've seen now, you have people who are students of knowledge, and they don't focus on knowledge. It's like they're doing everything else, I don't understand it, it's a very strange thing. I think it's because of the smartphone, you know. We were the last group of students before the smartphone. It changed everything. Like now you have students, they're online, they're on social media, they're doing different It's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be a student. You're supposed to be reading and sitting and sitting with people of knowledge and debating matters of ilm. You're not supposed to be posting stuff online or like worrying about your reputation or becoming popular or gaining influence or you know, figuring out how you're going to make money when you graduate and all this stuff. It's not like in positioning yourself like that. It's totally, it's complete falsehood. So we have to make sure that we understand things properly. The predecessors would prefer knowledge over everything else. It has been reported that Imam Ahmed only married at the age of 40. I'm going to skip the next paragraph because it's going to take us off target. 
The student must surrender to the teacher like a patient surrenders to the doctor. He must humble himself before him and be at his service excessively. This is the old model. The old model is that you find a teacher and you submit yourself to the teacher. I think we've talked about this a lot before. Um, you know, how we do that today, there's questions around it. But we should, we should know and we should understand that there's wisdom in how people did things. The problem is that we don't maybe live in the world that they lived in. So, like it was expected from, from, uh, from a young man that a young man has enough confidence and knowledge of themselves that they can deal with any number of different situations. And I'll give you an example actually, it's a really interesting story. Shaykh al-Qaradawi tells it, rahimahullah, in his autobiography. He says that he was a boy and his mother sent him to the Qur'an classes as a kid. Okay? There were two main Qur'an teachers in his village. He went to the Qur'an teacher and the teacher didn't hit him but the teacher hit other students. And he was a child. And he said, and myself didn't accept this. And I went home to my mother and I told her, I'm never going back to this teacher again. He's doing this and this and this. Don't send me there. He was a child, but he had like this much strength in himself, right? And his mother was like, okay. So she sent him to the other teacher and that, that teacher didn't hit anyone. But he had this like, like he wasn't going to be abused. And he's like probably six, seven, eight years old, right? Now our, re our reality is we have people who are like very old, but for whatever reason, the experiences they've been through in life and stuff, they can't distinguish between these things. They end up being abused all the time. They end up not understanding like where to put things, where to put their foot down, where to not put their foot down. It's a very fascinating phenomenon. But subhanAllah, you know, so assume that people weren't like that in the same way. This, of course, abuse will always happen, but they weren't like that in the same way. And then uh, on top of that, everyone lived together. So they all know each other. Right? So like, there's no faking it. I see these people every single day. I know whether or not I can trust them. Right? So when a person would, in this case, find a teacher and commit themselves to that teacher, then there would be benefit in that. Uh, one of the things that wastes the most time for students is that they don't have a good teacher to guide them. Because in the beginning stages in particular, you can't figure it out on your own. It's impossible. I spent many, many, I, I fell into this problem. You know, I've said it before. I thought I was going to figure it out myself. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You know? Uh, Ibn Abbas took hold of the reign of the right of Zayd ibn Thabit and said, this is how we were ordered to treat the scholars. This is actually one of my favorite stories from the Sahaba. Ibn Abbas, uh, subhanAllah, they used to say, um, Ibn Abbas anhuma, he was 13 when the Prophet died. But what is his relation to the Prophet Hmm? What is his relation to the Prophet Anyone? His cousin, right? And the Abbas is the Prophet's uncle. So Abdullah ibn Abbas is the Prophet cousin. But he's 13 when the Prophet died. So between them is how many years? 
50 years, right? 50 years apart. Only people with big old families understand this phenomenon. <laughs> Usually in the Muslim community, people understand. Outside of the Muslim community, they can't figure it out. They're like, how is 50 years? For us, it's like, it's normal. And people have relatives that are <laughs> uncles and cousins and stuff 50 years apart because it's how it happens, you know? So Ibn Abbas, he became one of the greatest scholars of the companions of the Prophet And one of the ways that he did that, of course, he benefited from the Prophet during his life. But he also did this by going to the Sahaba after the death of the Prophet and taking knowledge from them. So he used to go and wait outside people's homes, for example. A Sahaba who spent time with the Prophet Ibn Abbas would wait outside his home, wait till he comes out. They would say, oh, cousin of the Prophet why didn't you call for us? We would have came to you. You're the cousin of the Prophet He would say, an ilmu yu'ta wa la yati. An ilmu yu'ta wa la yati. He would say, knowledge is gone to, it doesn't come. It's, it's, it's just uh, why I'm saying this people understood this from the time of the Prophet this is not like some oh the scholars came up with these etiquettes afterwards in order to make things difficult on people and preserve. we have a lot of su'idlan by the way it's not a good look to have su'idlan for the greatest people in our ummah uh, it's not a good look at least we should just uh, stop but to assume bad about them is a very bad thing to do it's actually extremely dangerous spiritually you know, can you imagine someone has a bad opinion about Abu Hanifa radiallahu ta'ala anhu? You know, Abu Hanifa, they say that he prayed Fajr with the wudu of Isha for 40 years. You're going to assume bad about him? It's a very dangerous position to be in. You know, I'm, I personally would like to avoid that. You know, that's not a good thing to do. So, anyways, Ibn Abbas said it, it's gone to, it doesn't come. And this story that's mentioned here, Zayd ibn Thabit, he's in the position of teaching. He's older than Ibn Abbas. Zayd ibn Thabit is who? What's his prominence amongst the companions? Why is he really important? Really, really, really important. Zayd ibn Thabit, why? Because he's the one who was tasked with compiling the Qur'an. He's when, when Abu Bakr agreed with Sayyidina Umar that we should put the Qur'an in one book. It was written, but in different pieces and stuff. But we should bring it all together in one place. They tasked Zayd ibn Thabit with this task. You know? And then also in the time of Uthman, when they did it again, it was also Zayd ibn Thabit who was the head of the, t- the group. So he's a really important person. So Ibn Abbas, he <coughs> Zayd is going to his, his mount. So he takes the reins, and he's basically showing manners with his teacher. Right? He takes the reins and he puts them on his mount. And then uh, he tells him, he says, what are you doing? You know, like you're, you're the cousin of the Prophet He said, He said, as this is how we were commanded to interact with our scholars. And then Zayd ibn Thabit told him, stick out your hand, extend your hand. So Ibn Abbas extended his hand. And when he did that, Zayd grabbed his hand and he kissed his hand. And he said, he said, this is how we were commanded to treat the family of our Prophet It's beautiful, beautiful people. If a student is too proud to learn from someone who is not famous for his knowledge, he is ignorant because for the believer, wisdom is the object of, preserving, of persevering quest. So he takes it wherever he finds it. Furthermore, let him leave his personal opinion for the opinion of his teacher, for a teacher's error benefits the student more than his own correctness. Again, this will be someone who is trustworthy. 
And just because someone's in a position of being an imam doesn't make them trustworthy. But they're trustworthy because their knowledge and their piety and their taqwa and their aql. You know, Imam Ghazali used to say, don't trust a person's deen until you test their aql. You test their ability to think. You know, if this has been tested, then you, uh, then you trust the person, you know. And if that's the case, then you prefer their opinion over your own. That's why, as you said before one time, one of the great scholars of the time of Imam Malik came to the teacher of Malik and Malik was with him. And of course, anytime someone's a prodigy, they're known, right? So Malik was with his teacher, but he's a, he's a prodigy, so they know that he's, he's Malik, right? So this other scholar came and asked the teacher a question. The teacher gave his answer. He said, Malik, what do you think? And he said, I don't have any opinion. My teacher said his opinion. And he asked him again. He said, I don't have any opinion. My teacher said his opinion. And he said, I came here actually to know your opinion and I'm not leaving until I hear what your answer is. <laughs> so then Malik said, if that's the case, then my opinion is actually such and such. And it was different than his teacher's. It was different than his teacher's. But he wasn't like going to step out of line, so to speak, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive us. <coughs> Ali radiallahu anhu said, One of the rights that a scholar has upon you is that after you have greeted the people in general, you greet him individually. You must sit in front of him and you must not gesture with your hand or eye in his presence. Uh, before you start getting, again, you know, it's amazing how much hesitancy we have on these things. Who is the quote from? Did you catch it? Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Okay, this is not. Uh, you must not present present frequent questions to him or present a question directly to him. Do not be stubborn in asking for an answer if he is tired, and do not do not ask again if he refuses to answer. You must not grab his garment when he gets up. By the way, sometimes someone's not answering because there's no way for them to answer. Not because they don't have an answer. Uh, as we when we studied this other text, we went through a lot of these things, right? Like it's very important that we understand this stuff. Sometimes someone comes and they ask a question. There's no way you can answer it. It might be hard for people to understand. But, and there's many reasons for it. But sometimes it's impossible to answer it. Like maybe there's no way I can honestly answer this question without completely throwing someone else under the bus. How can I answer this question now? You know? So silence is like something we have to learn how to read it. It's not always because someone doesn't have something to say. You must not grab his garment when he gets up. <coughs> Do not spread his secrets. <coughs> Do not spread his secrets, backbite anyone in his presence, and do not look for his mistakes. If he errs, accept his excuse. Never tell him, I heard such and such say a thing, or such and such differs with you. Do not describe another scholar in his presence. Of course, these are general rules, right? Like, there can be exceptions to rules, um, but this is a general thing. You must not turn away from accompanying him for a long time and you must not raise yourself above serving him. If he is in need of something and others fulfill his need before you, know that he is like a palm tree. You are just waiting for something to drop from it to you. That's the end of the quote. Next part. If one wishes to learn, he shall not lend his ear to the differences between people, for this will only confuse him and tire his mind. This is extremely important advice, especially in the beginning stages of study. If a person in the beginning stages of their study is occupying themselves with all the difference of opinion, 
they'll never actually leave with anything. They'll just, they'll, again, this happened to me because the Azhar system assumes that you're already basically a scholar when you get to college. Like, technically speaking, say, for example, you're Hanafi. Say you go into the College of Sharia. I was in the College of Sharia, okay? In the College of Sharia, you study comparative fiqh and you study your madhab. In the Hanafi madhab, you study al-Hidayah, which is an advanced text in the madhab. Very advanced text. And in comparative fiqh, you cover comparative fiqh. The assumption is that you've already studied in fiqh. For example, at this point, you've already studied at least Nur al-Idah. You've already studied in Quduri. You've already studied Lubab on Quduri. And you've already studied in Ikhtiyar. These are from beginning to intermediate level texts. And Ikhtiyar is the text, the, the metan of Ikhtiyar is called Al-Mukhtar Lil-Fatwa. So actually, like once you've studied the level of Ikhtiyar, you're essentially a Mufti. Okay? That's the high school level text. So then you get into the college, it's assumed that you're ready to study Hidayah. And only because you're ready to study Hidayah are you also able to study comparative fiqh and only because you've already mastered your madhab at some level. Otherwise, you can't keep all the opinions straight. But if you come in and you haven't done that, then you learn all of the opinions and you can't remember anything. You can remember, oh, on this issue there's four opinions. I don't remember who said what though. I just remember there's four. On this thing, there's eight. Like we had some issues, in, especially in finances, financial transactions and stuff. I remember. It'd be like, You're like, are you serious? <laughs> there's eight opinions on this one question. So-and-so said this because of this. So-and-so said this because of this. So-and-so said this because of this. this the whole book is like that. So if you don't know your, like, your default opinion, you can't remember any of it. So when it says, knowing this, you see this all the time with people studying Islam in the community. They're obsessed with difference of opinion. This one and that one and this one and that one. Because everyone's arguing about these things all the time, right? But then they end up not learning anything. <coughs> he should take the best of everything as life is not long enough for learning all the sciences. After this, he must put most of his energy into learning the noblest of all sciences, namely the knowledge that pertains to the afterlife. This knowledge is his pathway to certainty gained by Abu Bakr al-Siddiq for whom Allah's Messenger testified saying, Abu Bakr has not preceded you with constant fasting or prayer. He has preceded you with something that has settled in his chest. We mentioned this, I think, last time or the time before. You know, uh, that Abu Bakr didn't exceed everyone else by the prayer and the fasting. He exceeded everyone else by something in his heart. So he's saying, once a person has attained basic level of knowledge, they should put their fo focus on this. Because that's where the benefit will lie for them in the hereafter. These are the duties of the teacher, the student. With respect to the teacher, he has duties as well. Among them, the following. It's very important, right? We should take a note from this. Uh, there's duties of the child, right? We always talk about duties of the child to the parent and so on. There's duties of a parent to a child. It's not just that they get to lord over the child with, as like, you know, overseers. And the child has to listen to everything they say and they have to be obedient to everything they say and they just need to not question anything and, and so on and so on. No, the job of the parent is not to be the slave owner of the child. The job of the parent is to fulfill the amana that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed in their hands. To respect them, to respect their honor, to respect their dignity, to respect their ability to think, their ability to have their own personality, their own perspectives. 
and then we kind of work with that, you know. Um, this is a very serious topic. So what is so? What is he saying? He's saying the student has a responsibility to the teacher. What is the responsibility of the teacher to the student? He must be gentle with his students and treat them like his own sons. He must not ask money for teaching and must not expect reward or thanks. As we've said before, this is part of the problem with the donation nonprofit model. Okay, so we have a in, in the majlis. It's a known thing now. Everyone laughs at me because they're like, everyone in, in the organization of the Majlis knows, do not leave it to me to ask for money. Because <laughs> I will completely ruin the entire event. Like people will bring a huge fundraiser, you know, bring in a guest speaker, take out the banquet hall, bring the food, do all of these things. And then they'll be like, you know, can you just like encourage them to donate? And I'll, I'll go up and screw up the whole thing because I just don't like it. You know, what, what can you do? I think it's ugly, actually. As I, I will take it beyond not liking it. And this is not to judge people who do it. It's their own business, right? So whatever. They, they feel they have some reason why they do it, and they feel that the greater need is in that. But for me, I feel that it's ugly. And, um, you know, may Allah protect us from having to do this. I mean, if the people of knowledge have to beg the people for their for their sustenance, I mean, they might as well just be homeless, right? Like, uh, what is this? Mashay qabih, staqbihum. Anyways, uh, so the teacher he must not ask money for teaching and must not expect rewards or thanks. He must teach for Allah's sake alone. He must not see himself as doing a favor for the students, but rather it is upon him to hold them in high regard for being people who have prepared their hearts to earn the proximity of Allah by planting the seeds of knowledge therein. They are like men who lend their, hand, their lands to another for cultivation. It does not befit a teacher to ask for reward except from Allah, to the extent the pious predecessors used to refuse any gifts from their students, even a gift. They would refuse, many of the salaf would refuse a gift from their students let alone actual like income, right? They refuse a gift. And there's a famous difference of opinion on this. You know, the early Hanafis, for example, it's prohibited to take money for teaching Islam. But then, of course, the fiqh, fiqh is important. Right? The fiqh, very quickly, the madhab realized that we will lose the teaching of the religion if people don't get paid for this. So they made it permissible. And other, other madhabs differ. It's not just one opinion on it, right? So it's not like a... Uh, but none of that, by the way, is asking for the money, per se. <laughs> uh, usually teachers were not uh, employees in the way that we understand them today. Now we have a little bit different. Like there's employees that are... Um, they would be salaried, but like in the old model of being salaried. Now basically people who are salaried are employees too. <laughs> their, their wage labor is the way that an hourly uh, employee is, right? But it would be more like uh, they have a stipend almost. Uh, the teacher must not be stingy in granting advice. If a student shows bad character, he must express his disapproval to him indirectly as much as he can. He must not scold him out loud, for this makes the students lose their reverence for him. Mm. Interesting point. SubhanAllah, very interesting point. 
He must consider the student's level of understanding and intellect and not delve into matters he cannot understand. It has been narrated that the Prophet said, I have been commanded to address the people according to their intellects. Speak to people according to a way that they can understand. A slight point on this is that sometimes you'll hear people endlessly dumbing down the public discourse on the concept that people can't understand it. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? So public discourse will remain at an extremely superficial level for 30 years because the people can't understand anymore. And first of all, uh, they can, right? Like we, we live in the United States. Vast majority, not vast majority, but many people in the United States have extremely high levels of learning, right? You can't just be speaking to them at really simple levels all the time. And, and the, secondly, it's the responsibility of the teacher to raise the level of the students. So if I'm speaking to my community at the same level for 20 years, this is a problem. This means that they haven't grown, and probably it also means that I haven't grown, right? And this is a two-way problem that's very, uh, there could be, it's not, again, to judge anyone in particular. <coughs> there can be a lot of reasons for this. But that's not a situation that we would want. Ali radiallahu anh said, there is certain knowledge here. There is certainty, there is certainly knowledge here. If only I can find people to carry it. Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anh said, there is definitely knowledge here. If only I could find people who carry it. They're, they're willing to take on this, this thing. A Shafi'i radiallahu anh said, Should I scatter pearls for grazing camels? Should I poetize prose for herders of sheep? Who grants ignoramuses knowledge will waste it? Who denies the deserving from it has wronged them? Imam al-Shafi'i has beautiful poetry. Actually, he's a hujja. And himself, he's a proof in the Arabic language, Imam al-Shafi'i. Um, if anyone can understand Arabic, I highly recommend reading the Diwan of Imam al-Shafi'i. You'll find beautiful, beautiful poetry. Uh, very, very profound. So what is he saying? He's saying, do I give pearls to camels? Should I write poetry for people who are herders of sheep? They're basically illiterate. They can't understand poetry anyways, but I'm going to write poetry for them. And then he says, and whoever gives knowledge to ignorant people, they waste it. Right? And who denies the deserving from it has wronged them. And, and at the same time, the one who denies the deserving from the knowledge, they've wronged them. Imam al-Shafi'i was also known for his wisdom. Very, very uh, wise person. And wise people, they know this. Okay, I can talk to this person this way, this person this way. There's a topic for the public discourse. Like, there's a topic for Sunday class. It might not be the topic for Jummah. There's a topic for a seminary class. It might not be the topic for Sunday class. Right? So, every, every situation is slightly different. Um... <coughs> One of our Arabic teachers was making fun of us one time because uh, you know, we tried to write some poetry or something. And then uh, <laughs> we showed it to him. <laughs> so he looked at it. Uh, brilliant, brilliant man. Beautiful person. May Allah give him the bad, help him and his family. They, they, 
you know, in the time after the revolution in Egypt, they, it's it's been very difficult. And um, <coughs> he looked at the poetry, <laughs> and he said, "Kefa tuqaddimu apple pie himar." He said, how can you present apple pie to a donkey? Basically, he's saying, you have no idea about the Arabic language in the first place, let alone any, any knowledge of, the, of, of poetry in the Arabic language. So how can, like, you're basically a himar. You don't understand poetry. What are you trying to do? <laughs> he made fun of us. It was nice. I appreciated it. Alhamdulillah. When you love people, they can... Uh, Sometimes say these kind of things to you, and you're okay with it. Someone gives you their life, basically. He gave us his life. You know, we spent five hours a day with uh, with our teacher for nine months. So, you know, like he can make he can make fun of you then. One time, I remember I was uh, we were <laughs> we were you know of course you break for prayer and. Um, Time we broke for prayer, and he's like, Yalla, So I made the iqama, we prayed. After we prayed, maybe they could go back to the classroom. And he just looked at me and he said, I've been teaching you for six months. <laughs> he said, I've been teaching you <laughs> for six months, and you're still incapable of making the iqama properly. Hafilahullah. <laughs> Inshallah, may every single letter that we read in the Arabic language may be in his mizan. <coughs> the teacher must implement what he knows and not go against Allah's words. Do you order righteousness of the people and forget yourselves while you recite the scripture? It's in Surah Al-Baqarah. Uh, interesting side point, actually, in the Azhar high school curriculum, and uh, not high school, sorry, Azhar middle school curriculum for tafsir, rather than going like surah by surah, they take particular verses. This is outside of your memorization, obviously. They take particular verses, and you study that verse, and it's, it's breakdown, and it's grammar, and it's rhetoric, and all of these other things, the lessons from it, and then you go to another verse. The very first verse in the curriculum is you know, do, you, do you command people to good and you forget about it yourself? Don't you have any sense? It's the first verse you take and analyze and understand. Ali radiallahu anhu said, Two types of men have broken my back. A violating scholar and a devotional ignoramus. A violating scholar and a devotional ignoramus. He's a scholar who doesn't act upon their knowledge. And a righteous, worshipping person who's ignorant. So both of them, he's like, both of them, they break my back. They cause you so many problems, actually. <laughs> cause so many problems. Section 7. The adversity of knowledge and the scholars of evil and the scholars of afterlife. Scholars of evil are those who use their knowledge to gain worldly enjoyment and reach a high position with those who can grant it. Abu Hurairah narrated that the Prophet said, Whoever learns knowledge that is used to earn the pleasure of Allah only for some worldly gain, he will not smell the fragrance of paradise on the day of resurrection. Okay, so now you see the danger of like this whole self-promoting uh, online 
student of knowledge culture that we have now, which is, you know, Allah protect us. Another hadith says, he who learns knowledge to compete with the scholars, dispute with the foolish, or turn people's faces towards him is in the fire. So now why you learn knowledge? I'll say it again. He who learns knowledge to compete with the scholars, to dispute with the foolish, or to turn people's faces towards him is in the fire. There are many other traditions on this as well. Again, the point of studying is to study. One of the things that we would see uh, when we were studying is that many students would come with their mind already made up. They're part of this group, or they're part of that group, or this group, whatever, you know? They have all their opinions already made up. And then they study just to reinforce the opinions that they already hold. This is very bad, right? The student actually should be changing their opinions along the way. It's necessary. They saw things this way, and then they changed, they learned something different. They realized, oh, maybe that's not the truth, maybe that's not the right way, maybe that's not, you know? Maybe they don't change their opinion, but they change their perspective. Maybe they were already right, it's possible. But maybe they change their approach, they change their perspective. But it should be that there's some sincerity in that. Not just, I'm going to argue with these people. Some of the predecessors have said, He who regrets the most when death comes is the neglectful scholar. Know that a scholar is obliged to observe his Islamic obligations and abstain from the forbidden. Even though he should refrain from worldly pleasures as much as possible, he is not obliged to abstain from worldly enjoyments and things that are permissible. People differ in this regard, and not all bodies are able to remain distracted. Now what is it saying? saying that the scholar has to stay away from the haram for sure. As for those things that are permissible and enjoyable from this life, it's good if they refrain from those things. But they don't have to because it's permissible and people will be different in this regard. And sometimes you see this in the community. It's like we immediately cancel someone if they're not as like ascetic as we want them to be. But it's halal. Like what they're doing is halal. They, maybe they wanted a home, you know. Is that such a blameworthy thing? Or maybe they wanted a car that works. Or like they wanted to not be dependent on the people all the time. They wanted to have clothes that looks decent. There might be any number of reasons why a person is doing it. Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa were known for this. And again, usually when you look at the four Imams, you get different perspectives. It gives you a lay of the land. Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa were known to dress very nicely, very beautifully. And Imam Shafi and definitely Imam Ahmed were the opposite extreme. You know? Definitely Imam Ahmed was the opposite extreme. Very, very humble. Wouldn't they take anything from this world, radiallahu ta'ala So there's different approaches to it. As long as they have dignity, as long as they're acting appropriately, as long as it's not becoming like kind of ugly in the way that it's done, it can be okay. It has been narrated that Sufyan al would eat well and say, if the beast is not given abundant fodder, it does not work. So Sufyan al-Thawri, he would eat well. And he would say, I have to eat well. You know, it just reminds me of a family member used to tell us all the time, you know, when you're a student, you have to eat more. Like it's because it takes effort to like sit down and study for 10 hours a day. You need energy. So like the, you can get away with less energy if you're not working like that. But if you need to do that work, then you need energy. You need to be able to do that. Uh, Imam Ahmed, on the other hand, may Allah have mercy on him, would it endure harsh living conditions to a great extent. The natures of people vary. This is Imam Ahmed. Allah made him for that. That's why he was able to take the stance that he took too, right? Saved Ahl Sunnah, Nasir Sunnah, He's the one who saved Ahl Sunnah by taking the position that he took. He was tortured by three rulers, one after the next. <laughs> Subhanallah. 
and he didn't give up. The scholars of the afterlife know that this world is worthless and the afterlife is a noble abode and that they are like two wives of a man. Such scholars prefer the afterlife and their actions do not contradict their words, favoring the knowledge with the greatest benefits. They are inclined towards knowledge that benefits them in the afterlife and are inclined and shun away from knowledge that is of little use. It has been narrated that Shikriq and Benchi, 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 important, right? Shikriq and Benchi told in Hatim, You have accompanied me for a while now. What have you learned? And Hatim said eight things. This is a very famous quote. Uh, it's in Dear Beloved Son also. I'm going to go through it. I'm just going to read it, okay? Inshallah. Eight things. The first, I looked at, but look at, I mean, just think about this response. He says, you've been my student for all this time. Tell me what you learned. He says immediately, I learned eight things. And he lists all of them. <laughs> it's incredible. Like, clearly, he's a very uh, good student. I'm pretty sure this is Hatim al-Assam. Hatim al-Assam. Anyone know how Hatim al-Assam got his nickname? It's a very amazing story, actually. There was a, a woman, an older woman who came to him. She came to him to ask him a question. And when she came to him to ask him this question, just by chance, she kind of like passed gas when she was doing it. So this is very embarrassing, right? So he acted like he couldn't hear her. He's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Like, I, I can't hear what you're saying. And he, he, he acted so much like he couldn't hear her that they thought after that that he was hard of hearing. So he became named Al-Assam. It's Hatim Al-Assam. It's out of his adab with this woman. SubhanAllah. It's an amazing thing. The first, I looked at the creation and found that everyone has a beloved. When they go to their graves, they depart their beloved. So I made my good deeds, my beloved, so that they could be with me in my grave. It's the number one thing. The second, I looked at the words of Allah, وَنَّهَنْ نَفْسَ عَنِ الْهَوَى and prevented the soul from unlawful inclination and strove to repel this lowly inclination till it became settled in obedience to Allah. Number three, I saw that everyone who owns something that he holds valuable tries to protect it. Then I looked at the words of Allah, ma yanfad wa ma Whatever you have will end, but what God has is everlasting. So every time I own something of value, I directed it to Him. So that, it remain, so that it may remain mine with him. Number four, I saw that people refer to money, nobility, and honor, which are all nothing. Then I looked at the words of Allah, إِنَّ Indeed, the noblest of you in the sight of God is the most righteous. And I worked deeds of righteousness in order to be noble before him. Number five, I saw that people are jealous of each other. Then I looked at the words of Allah, uh, we have we who have appointed among them their livelihood. Look how everyone is an understanding of a verse from the Quran. So I left jealousy. Number six, it's that simple. Number six, I saw them having enmity towards each other. Then I looked at the words of Allah. Indeed, shaitan is an enemy to you, so take him as an enemy. And I stopped having enmity towards them and made Satan my only enemy. Number seven, I saw that they humiliate themselves in their quest for provisions. So I looked at the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
وَمَا مِن دَابَّةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ رِزْقُهَا And there is no creature on earth but that upon God is its provision. And I focused on his rights upon me and left my property to him. The eighth, I saw that they rely on their businesses, manufacture and bodily health. So I relied on Allah. So I relied on Allah. It's done. Then Ibn Qudama ends this chapter by saying, Scholars whose goal is the afterlife should withdraw from the sultans and stay away from their presence. Very quick sentence, end of the chapter. <laughs> of course, in the other books, there's a lot of detail. Imam al-Ghazali spends a lot of time on this. Imam al-Sha'rani, who he wrote an entire book on this. Uh, the, so, uh, it's a very important one. Scholars whose goal is the afterlife should withdraw from the sultans and stay away from their presence. No. This is the default. Can there be exceptional cases? And should we have husnadhan? Yes. But what is the default? Scholar stays away from the rulers. Salimna ya Rabb. Salimna ya Rabb. Tayyib. If your kids are in the kids program, they're probably starting to get out. So just keep an eye. I'm going to go. Second foundation. We'll finish the chapter on knowledge. Second foundation on the inner secrets of purification. Hmm. On the inner secrets of purification. The footnote says, The term inner secrets does not mean that it is special hidden knowledge only known to an elite few, but rather the general masses of people are not familiar with it. The knowledge is well documented in the works of the Salaf and known by the scholars of Islam. Just as knowledge of humility in prayer, its virtues, its obstacles, and how to reach it are not known by the vast number of people, nonetheless the knowledge of it is available to whoever desires to learn it. So what it's trying to get at here, the footnote is trying to say, basically this is not like some sort of secret esoteric thing. This is knowledge that people can access and they can get. Is there an element of reality to the idea of inner secrets of prayer that are actually somewhat esoteric? Probably. But those wouldn't be matters that you speak about anyways. It would be something that you experience. So someone would learn this part of the inner secrets and they would apply it. And then they themselves might experience in their heart some really special thing about prayer. But they got that from experience. And if they talked about it, it wouldn't make any sense anyways. They wouldn't be able to because it's something that you would experience as we've talked about before you explain to someone what honey tastes like they don't understand what honey tastes like they only understand it if they if they eat it so if you try to explain it it's not going to help the person they have to actually eat the honey so is there a reality to like an inner secret true inner secret reality to salah of course there is but it's not a matter that's talked about and it's no, there's no benefit in talking about it actually you just talk about the sharia talk about the way of the salaf, talk about what people did, be motivated by that, and then we do it. And if Allah gives us some sort of feeling in our heart that we can't explain, then alhamdulillah, Allah is al-mu'ateen. He's the one who gives. Section one, on the ranks of purifying. Know that purity, tahara, has four stages. Four stages. The first stage is the purification of the appearance. 
from ritual impurity, filth, and waste. So this is literally the chapter on purification. Like, how do I make wudu? How do I... So this is where he's starting here. What, first stages, outward, outward uh, impurities, get rid of them. Second stage is the purification of the limbs from sins and crimes. Purification of the limbs from sins and crimes. So the hand could be used to steal someone's wealth. To purify the hand from stealing someone's wealth is a kind of purification. Okay, this is the second stage. Third stage is the purification of the heart from blameworthy traits and despised conduct. So jealousy is blameworthy in the heart. To remove that jealousy from the heart is a kind of purification also. And the fourth stage is the purification of the innermost self from everything except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is difficult to understand, but just know that it's a categorization. The fourth stage is the supreme goal, ghayat and qasma. Those with strong insight reach it while the blind understand nothing but the first level of purity. Accordingly, you see such men waste most of their precious time in going overboard with washing their private parts and garments, thinking because of the devilish whisperings and lack of knowledge that this alone is the purity that one must achieve. It wasn't the goal, right? Such men are ignorant of the ways of the early Muslims who spent most of their time in purifying their hearts while not being so strict about the apparent side. It has been narrated that Umar ibn Khattab once performed the ablution from a clay vessel of the Christians, though they barely washed off the offensive smell from their hands, prayed on bare ground, walked barefoot, and only used stones to cleanse themselves after using the laboratory. So basically what he's saying is that the minimum purity that's required from the Sharia is less actually than a lot of people think it is. And we go overboard, and then that becomes our entire focus, you know. Um, and he's saying that that's not actually what the limit is. But how does a person know that? They learn the knowledge of it, and then they know what the limit is. These days, where a certain group of people who consider their ornamentation equivalent to cleanliness, you see them spending most of their time in beautifying their appearances, while their inner selves lie in ruins, filled by the filth of arrogance, vanity, ignorance, ostentation, and hypocrisy. Should they see a person cleansing himself with mere stones, or walking barefoot, or praying on bare ground, or performing ablution from an old vessel, they would rebuke him severely, call him filthy, and refuse to eat in his company. So they would be like, who is this person? This person's nasty and dirty and all of these kind of things. And their hearts are filled with filth. And they miss the point. Observe how they regard asceticism in dress, which is a part of belief, filth, while ornamentation they consider cleanliness. See then how the evil has become good, and the good evil. But if one intends cleanliness with his purity, and does not waste water, and believe that using a lot of it is a fundamental part of religion, it is not wrong, but quite the contrary. So basically what he's saying, the person doesn't waste water, but they use enough water to actually clean themselves properly, they don't go to the other extreme, and then that's good. As for the different types of filth and ritual impurities, the books of jurisprudence should be consulted for more information on them, as the subject of this book is virtuous conduct. Okay? We'll stop here, inshallah. I just want to make one point about this. And that is that Ibn Qudamah is a Hanbali. Right? We talked about it in the beginning, he's a Hanbali. It's worth mentioning that there are definitely matters of purification in the Hanbali school that are far more difficult than the other schools. And so keep that in mind when you're reading what he said. 
He's saying everything that he said and he's saying this. Like for example, the, the position of the school is, if there's impurity on something and you want to clean it, you have to wash it seven times. Any impurity. So like blood comes on your shirt, has to be washed seven times. The urine is on the toilet, has to be washed seven times. Or like water poured on it long enough that it would be equivalent to seven washes. The Hanafi school, on the other hand, is very easy actually on many of these things. But so even though the school is very difficult, he's saying like people are going way too far in this thing. They should be focused on the purity of their hearts. Hello, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Before we make dua, any questions or comments that anyone has? Yes. Yeah, good question. So this idea of Imam Ahmed saving the Sunnah and taking the position he took in theology and um, how important is it for the layperson to understand this issue? Or is it like more of a scholarly thing and you can just kind of pass over it? Um, so my personal opinion is that lay people probably shouldn't get involved too much in this. Um, the issue relates to, just so you know what it relates to, it relates to the createdness or uncreatedness of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then what that affects in matters of theology. And the Mu'tazina took a certain position, the extreme rationalists, and they convinced the governments of their time that they should take that position too. And that anyone who takes the position of Ahl Sunnah, which is the uncreatedness of the Qur'an, then um, they should be like basically punished and, and shouldn't be allowed to do that. And so under the suppression was the great fitna. Imam Ahmed stood strong. I would highly not encourage people to get into this issue unless you're a student of knowledge. And, and you know, some people, they're into philosophy and theology and all of these kind of things. If you're into that kind of stuff and you're a student of knowledge and you've already studied a few things in Aqidah and you have a really good teacher who can walk you through this, then fine. But otherwise, I would kind of stay away from it because it's, um, it's, it's actually really not so easy to understand for most people. And um, because of the thorniness of the issue in the time, there's just like the historical side of it is difficult and the philosoph philosophical side of it. So that would be my general advice. Uh, anyone else have anything? How did Abu Hanifa radiallahu an handle scholarship and business? Because he was very successful in both. Um, my understanding is that Abu Hanifa inherited the business and that he had someone who basically managed it. And so my understanding is that his interaction with the business was quite hands-off. And But, you know, it's his business. And so he was there and he knew things and he understood things, he understood how the marketplace works and so on and so forth. But at the same time, he was basically mutafarid bin him. You know, he was basically able to give his life to knowledge. Um, because, you know, as we said before, he spent 18 years with his teacher. 
spend 18 years with Hamad. You can't spend 18 years with someone if you're doing other things. You know, he spent every day with him. So, and you know, especially in the, the it happens up to today, but especially in the pre-modern world, it's totally doable. But you would have to, you can imagine it as if like someone, maybe someone comes from a really wealthy family that has a number of businesses and investments and so on. And those are stable enough that that person could just kind of look in on it for a few hours a week and then they could go do whatever they want. And the money's there. They already own properties, they already own houses, they already have investments, those investments are already bringing in money. Probably has to look over the books once a week for a few hours and he's good to go. There are people like that. He was like that. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have been able to do that in the way that he was. So you, then you take the Imam Ahmed approach, which is that basically you live on nothing <laughs> so that you can dedicate yourself to knowledge. <laughs> you know, it's a, and people, by the way, people do this up to today. People did this all throughout history. It's important, we, we know that. Like, and when people went to an Azhar in the past, it was fully sponsored by the school. Up to today, by the way, like when we were there, Azhar was basically free. And we had to pay for our food and our living, but many people didn't. They had dorms for foreigners and they would live there and they had food there. Most Westerners wouldn't be able to handle it because like the quality is not so high, you know. But a lot of people from different places, it was fine for them. But uh, we shouldn't understand that they were like living the life, you know. Like when you went to an Azhar and you were sponsored to study, the old system was you slept in the masjid, probably had like a little locker sufficient for your belongings. Probably have like a couple outfits in your books. And that's all you have. You put it in the locker, you sleep in the masjid. You live like that for 10 years. And twice a day, they probably bring some really simple food, and like some fool, and probably like, like some bread. <laughs> and that's it, that's all you eat, all right? But people are happy because they can study. They spend 10 years like that, they become scholars. <laughs> so it's not like, uh, you shouldn't understand it like people understand things now. Like you go to a modern university, you have this beautiful university with all of these resources and all of these things and you get a scholarship and it pays for your bills and you get to buy all your books and every book that you want you're able to buy and you have this apartment that has like really amazing amenities and stuff like that. It's not like that, you know. But, but people are able to study. That's what, that's what mattered. So Imam Ahmed was... Uh, and every person has different situations. Don't, don't go to extremes. Every person has different situations. Okay? And we shouldn't assume that if, we're not accustomed, that if we're accustomed to a certain thing, it's so easy to do something else. It's not really. It can be very difficult to, to do something else. So, uh, may Allah help us. Ideally, you know, it would be great if the Americans could have what the Malaysians have. It would be amazing. You go to, you go to Egypt and Cairo. The Malaysians have many buildings, actually. They have full apartment buildings. The students live in the apartment buildings. The teachers teach on the bottom floor of the buildings. And the bottom floor of the building usually also has a restaurant. And the students live there. You know, it would be amazing. Imagine if we had... It's not that actually big of an investment. We could send students and they could study like that. It would be incredible. Inshallah. I like it, Tofu. Okay. Anything else? No? Subhanakallahumma bihamdik tashara wa la ilaha nastafana wa tuhu laik Allahumma inna nasaluka al-huda wa tuqawam al-afafun fina Allahumma stunna bi sutrika al-jameen Allahumma stunna bi sutrika al-jameen Allahumma inna nasaluka al-afu wa al-afiyah wa al-wa'afat al-da'ima fi al-dini wa dunia wa al-afirah 
ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزن قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب ربنا آتنا من لدنك رحمة وهيئ لنا من أمرنا رشدا نصر من الله وفتح قريب وبشر المؤمنين اللهم إن الحق حقا وزقنا تبعه وإن الباطل باطلا وزقنا اجتنابه ومزقنا حسن خاتمة ومزقنا حسن خاتمة اللهم عنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن إبادتك يا عالم السر منا لا تهدك الستر عنا وعافنا وعف عنا وكلنا حيث كنا إنقذ قلوبنا لك ونبهنا من الغفلة عنك إنقذ قلوبنا لك ونبهنا من الغفلة عنك اللهم اجعل آخر كلامنا لا إله إلا الله محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله عدد كمال الله وكما يليك بكمال سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المسلمين الحمد لله رب العالمين بارك الله فيكم وسلم إليكم تقبل الله منكم Thank <laughs> you.